This episode contains discussions of psychiatric experiments, breach of consent, and torture, as well as child abuse and medical malpractice. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, Exala, and I've been traveling between the US and Canada in Secret Tunnels! And I'm your other host, Trenzala, found inside of a secret tunnel and taught how to program minds. Today, we will be covering a nasty, very real villain of the fairly recent historical kind. But before we get into that, we have some feedback. Surprisingly enough... Wow, it's been so long, we got feedback to cover? Oh, we got so much feedback to cover. (laughs) Now, since we had some vigilantes on for our most recent episode... We didn't want to get their dicks in a zipper talking about it, so we figured we'll cover the feedback from episodes 3, 4, and 5 on this episode. So if you don't like 4th or 5th wall breaks, well then suffer and keep listening. (laughs) So our first point of feedback is from episode 3, The Driver. One of the main concerns was that we called it a paper cut episode, but it was in fact a regular episode. I think... Our paper cut should probably be a little bit shorter, probably not going throughout the entire like villains arc. But I mean, I, I, that's kind of what it makes our uh, podcast special is going through the villains arc. But maybe we should try to cut it down next time. Hit hit the uh, highlights. Yeah, I guess. I think that with a paper cut, it's kind of you can touch on points of the villains arc, but not go through the entire rigmarole analysis kind of deal. Made a little bit more lighthearted, I guess. Like. If we were ever to cover Darth Vader, we'd probably do a paper cut with other, like, Star Wars villains or something. I mean, kind of like we did with Saw, kind of, we had some of the highlights and some of the deeper points, but not everything. But maybe on paper cuts, we should make it a little bit shorter. Like, me with Vader, we don't discuss the entire lore. Yes. Another point of contention with Episode 3, The Driver, was that it wasn't a point of contention, but one of our feedback was uh, kind of an agreement with the... Um, toxic masculinity aspect we brought up with the driver but also that he had the white male superiority complex uh, especially considering that most other races in the movie were portrayed as criminals most notably with the father of benicio being like a latino man ex-convict kind of deal the driver's role in that movie as nav our ever-present feedback giver initiated was that the driver kind of filled the void of the caretaker left by a, quote, reckless immigrant husband a la old westerns where the savior cowboy shows up to save the helpless mom and kid, unquote. Yeah, in addition to that, I think the driver was not really careful in his criminal jobs, although he was super careful. I felt like he was pretty careful. For the most part, but feed- our feedback brought up, there was one notable scene where the driver said, I'm gonna smash your face in kind of deal, and that was when he was recognized in public. Right, so, like, he wasn't, like, super uh, uh, most secret person but 
during his jobs, I think he was careful, but like during his normal life, he was not nearly yeah, as careful. In public displays, he didn't worry about hiding his identity, which is why somebody noticed him at a bar and was like, hey, you look familiar. I think you were my driver. And uh, some other things is that the kid in Driver doesn't know that his dad is a bad guy. which Almost I- like a jab at racial profiling in a way. Like, the kid says, oh, you can tell they're criminals, just look at them when watching the cartoon about sharks. But, like, his dad is a criminal, and he can't recognize that either. Uh, and I would say, like, who does see their dad as a bad guy when they're growing up? Unless your, like, dad is really awful. Or abusive, yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, your dad's Superman. Yeah, and I guess with Driver, it's kind of a point of irony because the white dude, hero, knight in shining armor, goes under the radar and he is the real criminal. Also, another field, uh, like a feedback, uh, I would say, is uh, about his legacy. Uh, with Irene and Benicio, that's probably going to be a little bit of his legacy. Obviously still living, like, like leaving a huge impact on their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when we covered it initially, we were saying that he was considering leaving them the money, but then he left them safe in a way by defeating all the mob bosses. But really the impact he left on them, I think his thought of a safer world was really in his own mind. And something that now brought up in our feedback was that really the driver left them with their father dead, everything fucked up. And, that, and trauma. Like, yeah, exactly. How, how many times do you think... uh Irene's gonna think about that elevator. Exactly. Going and, to sleep? Oh my gosh. Or even Benicio being like, I'll never see my father again. Seeing his father being beaten up in the hallway. Anyway, as much as the driver thinks he's leaving them with a good legacy, now pointed out that really the driver is a scorpion reveling in his killer instinct, and that's what Irene and Benicio will remember him as. Also, the uh, villain's orgasm has now been rebranded as y'all might have heard in the last episode, mm-hmm. as the event horizon. Yes, it's essentially the point of irredeemability. A lot of times in a villain's arc, you will kind of hold on to hope for them. Like, oh, they can come back, they can redeem themselves, they can become better. But the villain's orgasm, now recoined as the villain's event horizon, is the point where the villain has taken a step too far and there is no point of return. Hey, let's get onto a little bit of the lighter subject. Sod? Oh, yes, our favorite cake-eating, ass-eating, child-abusing philosopher? Yeah, so the general consensus for our Sod episode was that it wasn't as spicy as many people expected. What? (laughs) You didn't explain all the, like, 300 torture scenes that he put into his book? If you really want to hear all that shit, then go read 120 Days of Sodom, okay? We did that for you. If you're really curious, you can listen to the 300 pages of spicy and annoying and kind of boring after a while kick stuff i mean he kind of seems like the like the charles manson of like just like perverted sex crimes true like yeah they were both on a villainous rampage yeah it's almost like a manifestation of like uh like in 4chan have you ever seen like uh the b-board i feel like i've heard of it but i have i don't go on 4chan who do you think i am It, it is a super crazy just like anarchy and just like the dumbest shit run by 14 year olds sounds great Uh, oh yeah Uh, you would see the wildest stuff there from gore to uh you know explicit images to uh just someone being like hey what's going on yeah so i guess we didn't cover sod like he was a post on slash b from 4chan but i mean he told he like his entire life is just like that yeah yeah but 
feedback that I got from not only Nav, but also some stranger named Bogdan said that we covered Sod enough to make people not want to read his writing, which I think was kind of our point, honestly. Fair enough. Now, another note was that somebody wanted to hear you attempt French next time. Je ne parle en français. One of the uh, elements of feedback that somebody mentioned was that Saad's legacy arc should have included a little bit more BDSM becoming a household thing in modern life with instances of FetLife as a social media Wait, website. Wait, what is FetLife? It's basically like Facebook for kink. Whoa. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I have some homework. That or um, YouTube channels like Evie Lupine. Definitely Lupine. research, right? Yes. Research. Research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even like Fifty Shades of Grey becoming a household name or like cult rom-coms such as Secretary. A lot more people are at least seeing BDSM or some form of kink culture as more accessible because Saad brought it into the public realm. So it's more of a household name, but we should not sum that up to just saw it as it is and also there was this feedback of something like the art comforts the disturbed and the disturbs the comfortable yeah that was a pretty interesting statement and it might be why maybe disturbed people go to find that content or maybe because they're disturbed they write that content um, which was a little bit of the feedback in the justification of for what sod was doing Mm. I mean, I guess we're in the mid-ground then, because we, we researched Sod, and we talked about Sod, and we were like, okay, this is kind of boring and annoying, but then we were editing it, and then we were highly disturbed, so I guess editing, we're too comfortable, and we gotta get outside of our zone. I, I, I think what really did it for me is I thought, like, uh, Sod was just being, like, a shit poster. Yeah, um, he seemed like one of those meme teenagers, like, was yeah, the 4chan B-board. Slash yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. But then, like, actually, like, uh, researching about his life and whatnot, I was like, oh. He's not just pulling the shit out of his dick or his imagination. Like, he's actually acting on it. Right, and I, I think that's what truly disturbed me. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Well, now, Dutch. Yeah. Should we go into that? Our most recent episode was Dutch Vanderlind. And one thing to note, which was already noted in our doobly-doo, but we are well aware the Duchess first love was named Annabelle, not Susan, and we only realized it when it was way too late and we couldn't edit over it. So we put it in the doobly-doo to acknowledge, but Dutch's first love was Susan, not Annabelle, so don't come at me. Also, I know I kind of disappeared, like, halfway through episode five. I thought you had to return some videotapes. I have to return some videotapes. Anyway, long story short, me and Blockbuster are in good standing now. You can't see it, audience, but I'm giving a thumbs up with a big smile. Uh, finally paid off my debts. Oof. You owed $4,000 to Blockbuster, the single Blockbuster left in America. Uh, $4,000, you mean four mil? Oh, God. Yeah, it was tough. Uh, another note, mostly on my behalf. We apologize for the audio quality. We're trying some new things and did not pan out as great as we thought. But, you know, we live and we learn and we tried our best. Yes, exactly. Um, One thing that Nav brought up in their email feedback was that listeners who have not played Red Dead 1 or 2 may have felt a little bit lost with the actual story, but that we covered the main villain points fairly decently, uh, which was great, especially given how long the games were. 
and it being our first episode. People sing so. hundreds of hours into these games. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad. Thank you now for that feedback. That makes me smile a little bit. Like, oh, we covered it fine, even though it was our first episode and everything was kind of crazy. It was uh, madness. Yeah. I would say if you want to get a very TLDR version of the Red Dead games, Girlfriend Reviews on YouTube covers the game very well as a backseat player. So... Who are we covering today? That's all feedback from the past three episodes. We are covering a new historical villain. Oh, I'm sweating. Who might that be? Uh, oh my gosh. It was so hard to get through so much feedback. Oh no, what am I going to do? Uh, the the critical points. The critical points. I don't know if I can ha- like handle so much criticism. Yeah, it was like a mixed bag. Like positive and negative. I, I think you should break down my mind so I can like find out how to handle oh, it. Yeah, you want me to practice some psychic driving on you? I can give you some words of affirmation as you sleep for the next 32 days. Well, that'd be perfect, especially since we're discussing... Donald Ewan Cameron. So, how did we discover this villain? Haha, A podcast! Ah! Maybe you'll discover more villains from this podcast, and then you'll make your own podcast, and it'll be a never-ending spiral of podcast upon podcast. Welcome to Chat GPT. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I was actually uh, looking up a camping trip uh, with my friends, and uh, I found, like, during the camping trip, that there was, like, this haunted place. I'm like, oh, we should go check it out. And you heard this from the podcast you had listened to called Brainwashed. Oh, no, no, no. I actually discovered Brainwashed from looking up this haunted place. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, uh, I was like, okay, I always need more podcasts to listen to. And so I started listening to this podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh. And that's how I first discovered this villain. Mm, um, and okay. it was mostly talking about uh, the victims yeah. of today's villain. Yeah, and so based on what Trin had heard from this spooky camping site, we decided we want to go ghost busting. It's abandoned. There's been a lot of creepy shit happening here. And then we found out much later there was a whole thing much out of the uh, realm of experience that we had expected from the Dorea Institute. So we'll cover that later. Essentially, Trin found a cool camping site. We went camping there. We learned about today's villain, Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron. So, born in Scotland, the psychiatrist is mostly known for his work in the field of psychology, especially when it was really new, and also kind of known for medical torture specifically for the CIA as part of the NK Ultra program. As part of psychiatric experiments, Cameron basically brought electroshock therapy, injecting people with LSD and barbiturates, and uh, mind control behavior to the public eye, all without informed consent. I think where NK Ultra kind of gets into this is with all of those therapies either together, separate, mixed state, he was trying to develop this kind of like mind control, at least modifying someone's behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's pretty interested in schizophrenia, I believe. Yes, yeah, schizophrenia and aging specifically. And in some of his experiments, he actually succeeded. So we'll give credit where credit's due. We have quite a few sources for today's episode since, of course, it's a historical episode. We've got to read our shit. Uh, the first being The Sleep Room, CIA-funded experiments on patients in Montreal Hospital, 1998 from the Fifth Estate. And then also the CIA's secret brainwashing experiment. Former patients sued the U.S. government, 1984, the Fifth Estate. We also have 25 Years of Nightmares by David Ramnick of the Washington Post, July 28, 1985. And Declassified Mind Control at McGill by Julia Vandepere uh, for the McGill Tribune, 
Lastly, we also have In the Sleep Room, the story of CIA brainwashing experiments in Canada by Anne Collins. And also all of my old memories from that brainwashed podcast by the CBC. Yes, yes. I think they cover a lot more outside of Cameron. They do talk about him. So on our podcast, we're just talking Cameron. So if you want to hear more about the legal scope, the psychiatric scope, the medical field, you can go listen to Brainwashed. Most definitely. All right. So let's get into this really bizarre guy. Yeah. So... Donald Ewan Cameron was born on December 24th, 1901, in the Bridge of Allen, Stirlingshire, Scotland. He was the eldest son of a Presbyterian minister, and as far as we have read into, there weren't any horrible things that happened to him in his youth. He seemed like a pretty, like, normal child in the 1900s. One thing I'm kind of questioning about, though, is, like, yeah, he had a pretty normal childhood, but... I also have in my notes here that in 1924, he had a Bachelor of Medicine in Psychology. Psychiatry, actually. Oh, psychiatry. Yeah. So, like, most people now have a pre-med. Mm. And so, it's kind of weird that, like, at, at this time... a bachelor's degree, and it's like, cool. Yeah, it's like a bachelor's degree in medicine um, from the University of Glasgow. To his defense, he did go on to get a few more degrees. In 1925, he got a diploma in psychiatric medicine from the University of London, and ended up training at Glasgow Royal Mental Hospital. That must have been pretty interesting. Yeah, so even though he had a bachelor, he also got another diploma and would later go on to get more degrees. But in order to get a degree, you need a kind of a good mentor, wouldn't you say? I would say so. And so in 1926, he served as an assistant medical officer under the tutelage of Sir David Henderson and uh, another Swiss psychologist named adolf meyer man that name did not age well (laughs) no it did not after training under these two professors and doctors and sirs 1926 to 1928 cameron continued his training under henderson and meyer in the u.s this time at phipps clinic johns hopkins hospital with a research scholarship so he got his early life training in scotland and was moving to the U.S., kind of up and out. Now, after coming to the U.S., under the tutelage of his various professors, in 1928, Cameron went elsewhere. He went to the Burgosi Psych Hospital as part of the University of Zurich, Switzerland, and studied under Hans W. Mayer. There, he met A.T. Mathers from Manitoba, which is, I would argue, where Cameron started crossing his threshold. I, I would argue he has another secret mentor. Of course. Coming up. Of course. That that taught him more of the dark arts. Now, a villain's arc does not have to be in the chronology we have initially set. So Cameron's going to kind of, I would say... Wibble wobble. Wibble wobble in between. Like we mentioned, he doesn't really have a big threshold trauma point in his childhood. I would say his threshold was when in... 19- I, I think he might have, but he just hit it. Perhaps. Maybe he uh, psychologically repressed it. Oh, yes. Maybe... Uh, We could bring it back out of him. Well, in 1929, Mathers, uh, one of Cameron's colleagues, convinced him to move to Manitoba, Canada, which I would argue Canada and North America is where most of Cameron's evil shit went down, which is why I think him moving to Manitoba is a threshold initially. And while he was there, he reorganized the mental health services in West Manitoba, established in 10 different clinics. 
which spurred on so much more throughout like the country, like in uh, Montreal. Yeah, especially Eastern Canada. Cameron had lived in Manitoba for seven years, and he really had his hold on mental facilities, giving kind of inspiration to go on. Now, oddly enough, while Cameron lived in Canada for so long, he worked there, he changed parts of the medical system, he never sought Canadian citizenship, and he lived there on and off for 30 years. From what I've heard from one of my friends who's trying to get it right like right now, it, it almost seems impossible, especially if you're like moving like all the time, which uh, one of my friend like For friends does yeah yeah to get uh trying to get like a, i think it's a permanent residency and then they're trying to like they go between like the united states and like canada all the time and so like it always like the government's always like what are you doing Oh, yeah, and they've lived here five years, so it's definitely feasible to think that Cameron had done something like that for 30 years. But And then it was just like, I won't bother with uh, all the, you know, paperwork. Bureaucracy. Well, in 1933, Cameron found love, and he married Jean C. Rankin, the previous student at University of Glasgow who studied with him, and, wow, happy family, they had four children together. So, in 1936... Cameron got his doctorate of medicine with distinction, a smart boy, from the University of Glasgow. Well, wait, I thought he was in Manitoba at this point. Well, before he got his doctorate, he was in Manitoba. As so, far as our research shows... Was he doing, like, what, like, a fax line school? Was he, like, faxing his, uh, like, exams? He was doing like, e-learning with it, Zoom? No. <laughs> Zoom in the 1930s? This is where we have a gap in our knowledge. He either sent his diploma or sent his papers via a courier pigeon or he went back to Scotland for a short time. But essentially, he got his doctorate and ended up moving to Massachusetts, United States. Where... I do think he faxed. Yes. He faxed his exams. Exactly. And, and, and then he was like, now I'm in Boston. Yeah. When he landed in Boston, shortly thereafter, he published his first book, Baby's First Book Wow, on experimental psychiatry. Which, in 1937, I believe, helped him become a director of research at, was it the uh, Worcester State Hospital? Worcestershire State Hospital. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. It was was Worcester State Hospital. (laughs) So he became director of research, but he didn't stay there for long because in 1938, Cameron moved to Albany, New York to become certified in psychiatry. Hey, you gotta move diagonally. You, you, you gotta move like in a, in a corporation. You gotta, so. you gotta, gotta reach out for a branch. You gotta climb that ladder. You have to diagonally. keep your career going. Well, I guess if you're moving from Massachusetts to New York, it'd be kind of diagonal. No, 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 I mean, like, moving diagonally, like, in, like in business. I got you, I got you. Like, Do that both literally and physically. True, 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 true. Well, after he became certified in psychiatry, from 1939 to 1943, Cameron became the professor of neurology and psychiatry at Albany Medical College and Russell Sage School of Nursing, which is where I feel like he starts to get his motivations a little bit more tuned into solidified yes smart boy smart boy has all this knowledge has all this training and education but really what really drives him yeah why do you want to be a good doctor or a bad doctor and also why 
psychiatry. Mm-hmm. From most of Cameron's teachings, he followed the British and European schools of thought and practice, specifically with regarding mental disturbances and diseases being somatic in nature, which is essentially is like fancy medical speak for. These oh, you things, think you're feeling pain. These things are hardwired and directly related to the body's biology. Y- your knee's not scraped up. You just uh, are imagining it scraped up. That or your knee pain hurts because you know that you're 30 years old and that your knee is degrading. So you or get maybe a psychosomatic just a, thing. Maybe it's you, just your back pain is just a manifestation of your depression. <laughs> your sneeze is a manifestation for you not wanting to go outside and get allergies. Well... The only reason I don't touch grass is because uh, of my somatic disorder of uh, not wanting to follow the internet. Or not wanting to touch grass. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, from these motivations, Cameron became more and more interested in uh, poking around, manipulating the human brain, especially in order to control memory processes and how they affect the body's physiology. He essentially wanted to study memory loss, especially in aging, and believed that aging brains experience psychosis, and that's where ailments could come from. Or it could just be all the lead that was surrounding them at the could time. Be, could but, be. Yeah, I mean, or maybe that, they were freaked out about the world war that was going on. Oh yeah, that, there's no other reasons for uh, that. It's all somatic. <laughs> in 1943. Cameron got a little bit of an invitation from Canada again. He was invited by neurosurgeon Dr. Wilder Penfield to University of McGill, Université de McGill, aka the Harvard of Canada, as some would think. Quoi? C'est quoi ça? Huh? C'est l'enfant de Eh? Yeah. So, <laughs> this, I think, is where we get into his actual main mentor. Cameron Ooh, yes, the dark, the dark Sith. The Dark Sith. Cameron moved to Montreal, Quebec, and met the Dark Sith. Dr. Donald Hebb. Now, the father of neuropsychology, actually. Yes. So why so was important, this important. Very. And as you mentioned, he was Dark Sith, but you want to explain a little bit why? Oh, yes. Because he introduced Dr. Cameron to the experience uh, or like he was doing trials at the time with sensory deprivation. Ooh, fun! We love it. We stand. So he was getting students at McGill to go into a room and they would put on goggles, which are kind of like blocked out, and keeping them in a room like with like a, like a trifold kind of around them, and they weren't like allowed to move, and they like had like gloves on so that like their sensation of touch was uh, dampened, and whenever they had to go to the restroom. Um, they would ask to be relieved, essentially. Correct. Um, however, they still had to go through all of the things with sensory deprivation, so they were relieved. However, in a way that kind of kept them within the same environment. I wish I could do that when I was sleeping. I wish I could do that when I was sleeping, too. But you probably wouldn't like it if it was going on for three days. No, fair enough. Which is when uh, most students would quit. The students were actually being paid for this. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a pretty good gig if you're a university student. Yeah, you feel a little bit weird. You don't have senses. You're getting cash money. Pay for your degree. Not only cash money, they're getting paid the same amount per day as a professor would be. Wow. Yeah, so they're actually getting paid like, like a great amount. However, there was one student 
who I believe went for something like five days or some uh, weird amount of days just like in this thing. And they're like hallucinating and like having all these weird sensations and whatnot. And uh, when they got out of it, they were like, uh, you cannot pay me a million dollars to go through that again. Yeah, I think the direct quote was, you cannot pay me 400 But for like mid-40s, 50s, I think the general consensus from a lot of students was, this was actually not a very good experience. I would, 10 out of 10 would not do again. Right. Because yeah. you're like denied of like any outside stimuli and your brain just starts like, Making up like, weird stuff to like try to it like be horrifying depends on how your brain state is. True. I mean, I was already going crazy as a student. Did you go <laughs> so crazy as a student? Really, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So imagine like going, oh yeah, I can get some good bank. I'm already going crazy. I need to pay my bills, and then it's more oh, compounded. I, I I can't think about all the I'm like okay. I'm I'm just sitting in this uh, study so I can procrastinate my paper. Okay, okay. Now I'm just thinking about my paper for five days straight. Good God. <laughs> oh, I feel like that'd be anxiety-inducing, to say the uh, least. For sure. Well, Cameron saw what Dr. Hebb was doing and learned a lot from him. And Cameron thought, why pay students for this? Why can't I do my own psychiatric experiments and not pay anyone? So he did just that. Cameron ended up getting grants to start his own psychiatric institute as part of McGill in Quebec. He got grants from the Rockefeller Foundation, money from John Wilson McConnell, and also a gift from Sir Hugh Allen in order to found his notorious Allen Memorial Institute for Psychiatry on the mountain or glorified hill of Montreal. What an entrepreneur. Wow. You know... Just it really takes guts to uh, torture people and get bank for it. Hell yeah! How profound! How could you do something so brave yet so controversial? You know that's what we're really trying to uh, bring people up in the World Domination Committee with. <laughs> if you would like to start your own psychiatric institute, <laughs> email us at committee at worlddomination.ca, and we will not give you money because we don't have any. We'll, we'll take the money. We'll, we'll take your money. That's fine. And it helps funds, like, our other evil plots. Yes. Very secret. Like the gay agenda. Shh. Very secret. Shh. Anyway. Now, a quick aside. We have visited Montreal, and we accidentally stumbled upon the Allen Memorial, which looks like a haunted house. I mean, it's located at a place called Ravenscrag, which, if that's any indicator... It, it's so bizarre, because both times... We were there. We encountered both of the things that he left behind. So he really exactly. left a mark like yeah. on this region. Okay. And it was so weird because we went to the mountain. We skateboarded with a friend. And then we we're just walking around. We we're like, oh, let's go up this hill. And we see this ominous mansion on the side of the mountain of Montreal. And we we're like, what's that? Let's go up and approach it. There was a cute cat. But the entire Allen Institute, much to what we didn't know, was the Allen Institute, it was boarded up and kind of falling apart, and we approached the front of it, and we got bad vibes from it, and we are like, we should probably leave. Now, apparently, Dr. Cameron and the Allen Institute, like, had, like, an open-door policy, but looking at that building, 
I'm like, <laughs> that's a door. That that looks like a prison exactly. to me. Exactly. It's something stereotypical that you'd see in like um, uh, Psycho or American Horror Story. Like the building looks palpably evil. Right. It's like, oh, you're allowed to leave as long as you don't walk outside the front door. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Correct. So then in 1946, he also introduced this, like, at-home treatment, which I don't think he actually, like, participated that much in. Yeah, I think initially he started that to make people feel warm and welcome. You can undergo psychiatric treatment here. You can go home. You don't have to come to the hospital or check into the hospital. But it really drastically changed the more and more Cameron got into his treatments maybe maybe we're just painting a villain here because maybe at this time he's just trying to build up his reputation maybe he's actually a really good psychiatrist during this time the medical system of canada having an open door policy would be a good thing for like the late 40s you don't have to go to a hospital for treatment so it sounds great also this is like a very new field he's i he's actually helping people theoretically he's essentially being a pioneer yes he's being a pioneer and he's actually uh setting up institutes and uh, not only colleges, but also, like, with actual hospitals to actually help people. Yeah. And th- that really gives him his, like, world-renowned, like, title. Yeah. Even being a pioneer. A couple years ago, the McGill website still touted Cameron as being, like, the foundation, of course, for McGill Psychiatry Department, but also for shaping the medical industry there. Now, as I have checked recently, they've they mentioned that Cameron helped found it, but they removed most of his influences which we will cover fairly soon so he was so world-renowned that in 1948 he published a book called remembering on aging and memory and links in psychiatry to human biology furthered by his definitions on like anxiety depression and schizophrenia which is what he really specialized in yeah, yeah. but he is going to get to greater stages that he escalates until the point where he is reaching his event horizon. So after he wrote Remembering, he also ended up writing Social Reorganization of Germany. Now, as a reminder, this is basically, he came up in psychiatry during World War II and in the resolution of it. So after writing his Social Reorganization of Germany, most of the arguments Cameron was trying to make was that German culture and society needed some kind of stricter regimen. Essentially, he argued that the populace desired authoritarianism, and in order to come back into public rapport and basically be regulated, they would need to be fully transformed by the West. After Cameron wrote Social Reorganization of Germany, he got invited to a very special party about the subject of Germany. Ooh, fun! Oh, 1945. I don't know what happened during that time. Post war, like oh, oh, something big happened in Germany. I don't know what. What what, was it? The Nuremberg trials, trying Nazis for their war crimes. Was this it, was this the you know since a really fun party I'd like to attend sounds great one one way to network for sure with other psychiatrists you know like we're diagnosing these Nazis with mental illness it's a great networking event now all this came like to head because of like what uh, what was his name Rudolf Hess yes who was the deputy Führer to Hitler wow 
Basically, oh, wow. the second head of the Hydra of Nazi Germany. You know our podcast is ending when we cover Hitler. Yes. Other than that, this guy was saying, like, oh, no, I can't remember any war crimes because I have, like, amnesia and um, I'm seeing stuff and I have, like, hysteria and I I just, I, I had no idea what was going on. I, I was just really confused. Yeah. And Cameron was there to try him if he was mentally stable or not during World War II. Because he's already, like pretty renowned at this point but this would make him like like a superstar a superstar in like the psychiatry psychology kind of it's um, your biggest show you're diagnosing fucking nazis right after the (laughs) the the biggest war that the uh earth has ever seen yeah exactly and it's a little bit of misstep but you don't know that until later cameron and his comrades ended up diagnosing Hess with amnesia and hysteria, and Astrid mentioned... Wait, no, 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 no. He was actually not diagnosed with amnesia. He was diagnosed with a subpart of amnesia, but he uh, he was also declared sane so that he could actually face his war crimes. So he had amnesia, but not around the events in which he actually committed the crimes. Right. And Hess actually did later admit he did not have amnesia for that so that's why I was saying it's kind of a well, weird misstep for Cameron, but trials are weird. As part of the Nuremberg trials, Cameron tried a multitude of German doctors, Hess being the most notable, for their war crimes, including unethical research on unconsenting subjects as committed in concentration camps. And to quote Cameron himself, he denounced the atrocities committed by German doctors during the war and supported the Nuremberg Code, which laid out specific rules about what was legal when conducting human experiments. Now, if this isn't foreshadowing, I don't know what is. Yeah, I I think at this point, he's kind of getting interested in the research of uh, a little bit of the unethical practices that the uh, Nazis had committed inside of the uh, camps. camps. Yep. I think, at least for me, I would argue this is Cameron's revelation. He is seeing unethical medical practices and how it affects the psychiatry of certain people. Also, the physiology and the existence, of course. But being Also, seeing of- how much research has, like, got proven during those war crimes, especially in the medical field. Exactly. So... He is Which is not, not not saying it's right. It, it, it's obviously not he's right. He's curious about it. He yeah, yeah, yeah. has a new world opened up in his brain of what can and what should not be done in medical science. I, I think he mostly just sees what can be done. Exactly. After the Nuremberg trials, Cameron published Nuremberg and its significance to essentially try and reinstate justice in Germany, even though he wasn't even a German citizen. Cameron wanted to prevent a recreation of the world wars and argued that Germans were likely to commit atrocities again due to their historical, biological, racial, cultural, and psychiatric pasts. And I think this is really where uh, he almost gets like this kind of uh, Nazi ideal of a pure state, but I think he's, instead of with genetics... uh, It's with mimetics. Yeah, it's with mimetics. I believe he termed the phrase weak people and strong people but he meant it mentally and he might have meant this about the german people at the time trying to reshape their culture saying like they were a bit weak in their 
psychology. Yeah, I think he started from what he learned in the Nuremberg trials and researching Nazi Germany. He formulated his opinion about the, the weak and the strong based on the German populace, but started extrapolating that to anyone, which I think is what brings us to his rebirth and transformation in the villain's arc. He started distinguishing different groups psychiatrically as weak or strong, basically calling the weak anxious, isolated, or insecure people who couldn't cope with life and ended up being isolated by the strong. Which you could see probably in his point of view, them having uh, Germany have an economic crisis, a strong leader comes to power, Mm -hmm. a bunch of weak people follow them. You know, you can see how someone builds up this mental model during this time. Right. And the last point that he was arguing about this weak and strong dichotomy was that the weak should be removed from society, which we see how he is basically viewing German people. Yes. And so that's where, like, memetics come into uh, play of seeing, like, people, maybe not based on their genetics and whatnot, but based on their mentality. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you have the wrong mentality, maybe you should be removed. Yeah. Either that, or as we'll see in his later works, rebuilt. Yes. So, after this refining moment in his psychiatric breakthrough, Cameron began to further study patients with psychiatric disorders, but especially compared to those without psychiatric diseases. He worked at a hospital where he had both mentally ill patients and physically ill patients, and he kind of compared them against the two. Especially, he noted mental patients' behavior could resemble that of a non-mental patient, essentially coining the term intrapsychic, eventually psychosomatic relations. The, oh, it's just, it's just somatic. It's just psychosomatic. Oh, your brain, you're, you're thinking you're sick? Yeah, yeah, that's just your brain telling you you can't eat gluten. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not allergic to bees. You just think you're allergic to bees. Now, based on his refinement after the Nuremberg trials and defining psychiatric and non-psychiatric diseases, Cameron continued to evolve his theory. He believed culture and society really were what affected the human condition. As we mentioned earlier, the weak and the strong, the weak were those who were unwanted from society, kind of like the derelicts of society. And... Maybe psychiatry could probably uh, like do something like maybe pl- uh, like play more of like an authoritarian role, kind of like a technocracy. Yeah, almost. Whereas like, like the experts get to uh, kind of make the rules. Yeah, not punishing the mentally ill, so to speak, but isolating them and making sure that the quote strong would not be infected by them. I mean, as we- I mean, like I-, I think even believed that like. Mental illness was... Generationally transmitted disease. Yeah. That it could be passed from your family members. I mean, which is not entirely wrong. No, no. A lot of times if a family member has, like, bipolar disorder, it can be genetically passed. Or just, like, schizophrenia. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's not entirely wrong here. Right. But I think his execution of, we need to start separating these people, was kind of like a form of eugenics in but a way memetics based on his uh his theories on the germans i also think that uh, he also believed that it was a bit of like the cultural thing going yeah. with it and like the like the thoughts themselves 
or so viruses. His definition, or like him coining it generationally transmitted, was also like a societal thing, too. Yeah, because you're going to be raised by your parents, then you're going to raise people, and then those people are going to raise people. Cameron argued that any mentally ill person should be quarantined from society and, quote, eliminated as carriers, which I think is kind of ironic. Yeah, especially since he was trying Nazis at the Nuremberg trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let, oh, this person's sick. Let's just, uh, I don't know, remove them from the world. Especially since he's supposed to be a doctor. Like, he has his doctors in medicine now. Like, yeah, quarantine him from life. <laughs> right. It was kind of funny, too, because Cameron also thought, like, as we mentioned, he thought it was generationally, socially transmitted, but he also thought ideas could take hold and make people sick. Kind of like in the, that really good zombie movie, Pontypool, where it's not a zombie virus that takes hold of people. It's a language. It language itself. He thought, like, oh, if you listen to emo music, it's going to make you sick, so stop listening to My Chemical Romance. Right. That's kind of, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's like the same argument that people make today about, oh, video games make people violent. It, he he was like maybe one of the progenitors of kind of like yeah, this I idea. I could see that. And I think that con- continued his motivation of like, yeah, he wants to pursue like the scientific method and study psychiatry, but it's kind of sending him down this rabbit hole in a way, like going further and further into these weird weeds that don't have as much factual proof. Right, but he also... He- not only did he have, like, some really shit takes, he had some pretty good takes. Like, in the 1940s, he created a lecture called Dangerous Men and Women to Describe Dangerous Personalities. He was basically one of the first people to start kind of describing uh, antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. He was also, at the time, including passive compromisers to those people. By antisocial personality disorder, I mean, like, psychopath mm-hmm. or, like a, like, a sociopath. And um, when I say, like, passive people, I mean, like, people who are afraid to, like, kind of, like, speak out against someone if, like, they're being a bully or uh, doing something that someone doesn't like. Um, I wouldn't say that necessarily would classify you into a psychopath or sociopath. No, no, no. I'm saying that the people around uh, the person with the antisocial personality disorder. I see. As far as I understood in his lecture, he also called out possessive and jealous people as being potentially dangerous. Right. I, I I suppose, like, possessive and jealous people could also exhibit signs of um, maybe psychopathy. Because, like, you hear all the time about murders that go on when someone catches their partner in the bed cheating. Like, you know. True. Um, or, like, a, what is it? Murder of passion. In which, like, people will just briefly, their brain just, like, goes offline. <laughs> but there's some people out there that, like actually have to think it out right yeah premeditated yeah like premeditated and like this could be like psychopaths or like maybe insecure people i guess like you were saying like a man catches his wife like sleeping with another man that brings into insecurity but also possessive and jealous and maybe passive until you get to the point of action like i'm gonna murder right but maybe uh passive people before uh lead to nazi germany True, so, true. Yeah, if not enough people stand up to some force like Hitler, then your entire country gets taken over. I guess maybe one could argue that with the United States. Hot take. All right, well, let's segue for a second. All right. We know Cameron was working in the U.S. and a little bit in Canada. He started refining psychiatry after the Nuremberg trials. 
And around the same time when he was writing his lectures and his articles redefining psychiatry, there was also a really weird thing going on in the province of Quebec, Canada. And this was kind of an influence, or at least at the same time that Cameron started getting some of his funky ideas. In the 1940s and 50s, the Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis started concocting a scheme to scam the government, essentially, with the Catholic Church, because of course the Church was involved. Essentially, orphanages did not get enough funding, so they thought, let's convert our orphanages into asylums so we can actually get the funding. And there were so many children, so many children, who just maybe they didn't have the means to support their children. A lot of times it was unwed mothers were convinced by the Catholic Church to give up their children because obviously sex out of wedlock is a sin and your child is a bastard. And if your child's a bastard, obviously they're mentally ill. Yeah. So, uh, no, not obviously. I'm, I'm making a joke we're here. being satirical here. This was what happened in a lot of orphanages. Uh, the most notable one for us is the Dorea Institute where we wanted to camp. As these children were falsely declared mentally ill by the government, they were subject to torture, including lobotomies, electric shock, water torture, child abuse, sexual abuse, and many more things. Oh, if I remember correctly, um, John F. Kennedy's uh, sister was subject to this. Uh, she got a lobotomy uh, because the Kennedy family just really didn't want to deal with her at the time. And that was much later. Or yeah. A little bit, like, kind of during the same time, but, like, a, a little, little bit later. A little bit after, yeah. But they were doing this to children who had no mental... Lobotomies are not condonable by any means, but imagine just being an orphan, and suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, I have schizophrenia. And they're like, uh, no, I don't. And then you get a lobotomy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, you stole more cookies than your siblings from the cookie jar. Well, for your punishment, lobotomy. Yeah. So... Dorea Institute had a lot of these horrific actions going on, and this might seem a little bit of an aside from Cameron, but the Dorea Institute was 600 feet from the U.S. border, and it was theorized that tunnels ran from Franklin, Quebec, into Albany, New York, where Cameron resided. You know, actually, it was so close. I remember when we were trying to camp, uh, we were going down this like road, and we are like, trying to find when a we camp spot. we were trying spot. to drive to the Institute itself. Yeah, we're trying to drive to the Institute itself, and we're trying to, like, drive, and then all of a sudden there was, like, this huge, like, gate, and there's a bunch of people. On a one-way street. Yeah, it's a one-way street, there's a bunch of people in vest, like, you know, with, like, guns going around, like, oh, this is the border to the United States. And we were with some Canadian friends, and we were like, pull an illegal U-turn, they cannot cross the border, there are no passports in this car. So it must have looked suspicious as hell. Like, looked like we were fleeing, like, the scene of a crime. Like, just, like, turning around, like, nope. Yeah, but the Institute was that close to where Cameron lived. And we do know that Cameron did work at Dorea for a period of time. It's undisclosed. We don't know how much influence he had on Dorea. But I think it's safe to assume that he was part of experiments on these children that later influenced what was to come. And we also do know that he was part of the CIA, which was an American-run exactly agency. Which brings us into, I think, what would be getting close to his uh, villains of Ant Horizon. Cameron got involved with the notorious CIA MK Ultra project, which, if you don't know, was a project done by the CIA uh, when the CIA was still 
kind of uh, getting its legs, being a new agency. But they thought that the Russians might have some ability to control people's minds. There was a bunch of weird experiments going on at the time. However, uh, the U.S. government was also thinking that they would uh, be able to have an arms race, as this was the beginning of the Cold War. If I remember correctly, too, it was also post-Korean War. Yeah, it was also post- also afraid of Korean brainwashing. Right, and also uh, Chinese brainwashing at the time, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, China was also becoming communist, so there was a, uh, a huge ideology against communism versus whatever the United States was at the time, probably capitalist, um, thoughts and ideas going on, and how they could convince someone, like maybe at, like a random Russian, and brainwash them, send them over to the Soviet Union, and have an inside person. So this I, is what the CIA's idea is, and they thought that chemicals might be able to uh, elicit this effect. Right. I would also say, uh, I don't know if we mentioned it, but the uh, MK Ultra pro- sub-project happened between the 50s and 60s, and of course it was to monitor people, to perform psychological warfare, but also to try and do some behavioral modification. If we have a, quote, communist in our midst, can we reprogram them? And that branched off MKUltra into being as notorious as it is today for illegal human experiments. Which actually happened way more often. Dr. Cameron is not the only one that participated in no, these programs. No, he was one of the 144 sub-projects done by the US CIA. So the sub-project that Cameron was involved in, MKUltra 64, was one of 144 of them. So that's a lot going on. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot of human experiments. Mm. So he got actually government funding to like carry out these experiments because right. he was trying to correct uh, schizophrenia, which today is believed as, or in some parts, is as a fracturing of the mind. But he believed it was more of like a personality thing. Like your right. brain was getting um, programmed in a certain way that made you unfunctional in so- uh, like society. Yes, so he thought he could reprogram the brain in a form of depatterning. Yeah, by he he was going to try to erase the memories, erase the personality. Erase the personality. Basically erase the person and start on a blank slate. So, with this theory in mind, as we had kind of foreshadowed with the knowledge of the Dorea Institute, Cameron once again commuted from New York to Montreal on a weekly basis to carry out his de-patterning experiments at McGill University. Actually, uh, one thing I think I heard was that his studies on schizophrenia were actually, he was uh, trying to go after the Nobel Prize for solving such a disease because he really saw it as kind of like a virus, as we talked about earlier, like, you know, being able to spread from a person to a person. So he's like, oh, I can cure this. This will help all of humanity. Right, but in the midst of that, his... Efforts to cure people kind of went out of control, especially with the influence of the MK Ultra project. When he was commuting and attending McGill to cure schizophrenic patients, he ended up working on the mind control experiments at the McGill Allen Institute, which were, of course, unethical, invasive, and eventually performed on unwitting human patients who never consented. Now, as we mentioned earlier, with his mentor, this person was experimenting on students who consented to stay for three days for experiments. But yes. Cameron thought, I have this huge 
base of people to experiment on. If I can get them in the door, they will stay. And this is what differentiates him from Donald Hebb, mm-hmm. which is a respected member of McGill. Yeah, and his mentor. To someone like Cameron, who Cameron was well acquainted with the necessity of informed consent and experimentation. And he knew proper medical practice. I mean, he fucking tried people at Nuremberg, like, breaching human rights violations. And hypothetically, he did not practice informed consent on his patients. One could argue that it was informed consent, but mm, let's be real. It, it was not. hypothetical. He had patients in the door, and he told them, eventually, you cannot leave. So hypocritically, I, I would say, is the more apt term. Oh, I bet he, I, I bet he told them that he uh, that, that he could leave, but... Like we said earlier, you can check out any time you like, but you can't leave. So I think it's more hypocritical than hypothetical. Fair enough. I would agree. Now, Cameron's experiments at McGill, as we mentioned, were mostly performed on patients who started by checking themselves in. A lot of them were people with anxiety or postpartum depression, and they went to the Allen Institute willingly as recommended by their private physicians. And here is when we get into the event horizon. Yes. The main point where he feels all of his power. He's world-renowned. He is... There is no return. There's a Nuremberg trial... He is the head of an institute. He's the the best psychiatrist in all of Canada. In medical industry. Yes. So what he used to do is he would take patients in and patients he, with anxiety and postpartum depression, fairly like not easy mel- mental illnesses to deal with, but there are at least nowadays fairly easy treatments. You wouldn't consider that something like schizophrenia, which he was very interested in. Right. So he was taking all forms of people and then subjecting them to stuff that they did not consent to such as like megadoses of lsd which acid lsd 25 kind of like a new thing that was very prominent yeah inside during this period of time people are trying to study the medical benefits of it which one could argue cameron was trying to do but i think that he abused lsd as a drug to fully depersonalize his patients and he was trying to use that as an end to a mean for that blank slate approach that we were talking about earlier. He wanted to abuse LSD on patients to clear their brains. Now, for those of you who don't know what LSD does, it is a psychedelic drug that in high enough doses can lead to an event called ego death to some people where you are kind of uh, not a part of your body anymore. Small doses don't have this result. But Cameron experimented on patients with LSD 14 times a week, which... Which, which with super high doses. Yes. And also, you're in a hospital bed. There's no set and setting. This is not Burning Man. Yeah, exactly. There is no intent. There's no one to guide you through your trip. You have your drug injecting you with a needle, and you're tripping out for the majority of the week. And also, for those of you who don't know, LSD can last for 8 to 16 hours. So that takes up the majority of your day. If that is happening over 14 times a week... Your entire week, you're tripping balls. And that is never a good experience. Oh, yeah. But that's not where it stops. Uh-uh. It continues on to, like, imagine doing this psychotropic drug that makes you freak out. Not freak out, but, like, If you're experience- in a psych bed, yeah, you'll probably be freaking out. Yeah, maybe if you're in a psych bed. Uh, or experiencing things that are very uncomfortable. You might need, 
not having the best time, or at least not being confronting in your... yourself, confronting your environment. Yeah, not being in your sane mind. Let's say mm-hmm. you might be in your sane mind uh, doing these drugs. Your, you're, you're not your usual mind. self. Yeah, exactly. So during all of that, you might also be going through electroshock therapy, which was one of the many treatments that Cameron started using on his patients. His electroconvulsive shock treatments were. Yeah, you may have heard of shock therapy or like maybe as part of conversion therapy or even as benign as something like the alpha stim device, like small amounts of electroshock therapy to regulate your mood. But Cameron used electroshock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy at 30 to 75 times the usual intensity, basically frying patients. You're already going through a high intensity LSD trip. That or even whatever your mental illness is. I'm pretty sure not all of them took LSD. It was used a lot, though. So you could be going through an LSD trip, and then you're suddenly wired up. Or you could just be totally deprived of any sensation. As we mentioned earlier from Cameron's mentor, he was very fascinated by the effects of sensory deprivation. Uh, He learned that from his mentor on consenting patients, but Cameron thought sensory deprivation could be used to kind of force them to accept certain messages as part of another therapy. For example, uh, with Dr. Hebb, his mentor, his main mentor, he had one student go five days. Mm -hmm. One of Dr. Cameron's patients went 35 days. Yeah, and keep in mind that Hebb's patient was a student getting paid for an experiment for five days where he could withdraw and never go back again. Whereas Cameron's patient was exposed 30 days, not paid, to be treated for a mental illness, in which most of the time there was actually no benefit whatsoever. Hey, you can leave any time, only if you can feel your senses to get out. Yeah, if you can't use your legs to leave, how are you going to leave? Right. If you can't say no, Cameron goes, ah, that's a yes to me. (sighs) Right, and then just continues on. Yeah. And I would say that also leads into one of the, like, most notorious portions of Cameron's experiments, which was psychic driving or sleep therapy. We will get into a little bit more of what this is in a minute, but to quote the words of Cameron from his Journal of Comprehensive Psychiatry in 1962, the de-patterning program, quote, consisted essentially of the administration of two to four electric shocks daily to the point where the patient developed acute confusion, disorientation, and interference with learned habits of eating and bladder and bowel control. The patient may also show loss of a second language or all knowledge of his marital status. I also think what's really interesting is also the amount of drugs that were used inside of his... uh... Of course, of course. This is the mid-60s. We got a bunch of stuff on hand that's not Schedule 1s yet, so let's try acid, let's try barbiturates, let's try whatever we have on hand and see how that interacts with other psychiatric treatments. Right. LSD might not be the main victim here, might also be barbiturates. Yes. And also uh, benzodiazepines uh, utilized to keep people asleep while psychic driving is going on. Before we get into the psychic driving, I would like to say that... A lot of Cameron's intent was for the electroshock therapy to reduce a patient to a childlike state or a breakdown of their stress coping mechanisms. So as we mentioned earlier, getting them kind of cleared out is preparing them for the next step. 
which is where the barbiturates and psychic driving comes in. Right, which the electroshock therapy might be kind of, someone might say, like, sound like they're cured if you shock them with enough electricity. They'd be like, I'm, oh, I, I don't have anxiety I'm anymore. I'm I, done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm cured. Just because they're in so much pain from, like, the electroshock. I don't want to do it again. Right. But with the use of barbiturates in, like, benzos, I think this is also a little bit more horrifying. That's where the breach of consent, like, really comes into the forefront. Because if you are unconscious, can you say yes or no? Not really. You You have no idea what's happening. You can't consent to anything. And Cameron took that as a thumbs up. So after these electroshock therapy treatments, after potential LSD treatments, or even sensory deprivation, he would bring his patients into the sleep room, as is commonly termed. In which, in this state, he would put people like down into basically a coma. Yeah, he used barbiturates, which... It basically means that your memory is basically shot and gone, and you're really, really sleepy. So he's kind of roofing people? Yes. Uh, yeah, he's basically roofing people so that they have no idea what they're doing and whatnot. Obviously, you can see that people cannot consent because people can't consent being roofied. People can't consent being roofied. Yeah. If you can't consent to anything while you're asleep, like, and this is a drug-induced sleep. Right. In which people would probably be asleep for sometimes as long as three months. Yeah, one of his patients was put under for that long of a period. It may have been shorter for a lot of them, but throughout each of these sleep therapy, quote-unquote, or psychic driving sessions, they would be drugged, put into a medical-induced coma, and played looping music or noises to shape new behavior. You have the electroshock, you have the LSD, you have the sensory deprivation to create the blank, childlike state, and now that we have a fresh start, let's reprogram you using looping tracks of audio. So if you've ever, like, fallen asleep listening to a podcast, maybe like ours, you might hear some funny ads, like a Cowboy Bebop-themed one playing, and go, that's part of my dream. Subscribe. 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 So if you hear that ad nauseum for three months, you might be inclined to subscribe, as Cameron thought. Now, this Except was, for this person. Yeah, this was not used for... Like, kind of funny means. He used various statements, like one of the most notorious patients. Well, I, I believe one of his patients was like, over and over again, was kill your mother. Kill your mother. Kill your mother. For weeks on end. Actually, no, I think it was like, your mother's dead or kill your mother. It was, it was something along the lines of, you have killed your mother, you murdered your mother, your mother is dead because of you. And when the patient came out of the coma and was released, he went home and thought his mother no longer existed because he had murdered her. And this sounds woo-woo, this sounds weird, but this is actual experiments that have been performed upon people. Right, and maybe he believed that because he was in a coma for three months. He doesn't remember anything. Yeah, like, he has this huge gap of time missing. But I think there is merit to say that hearing that repetitive track, even in a subconscious state, had influenced that patient. And so Dr. Cameron did this not only on like a few patients. Like It's not like four or five. No, no. It's, it's probably around 53, maybe up to 80. 
I know 77 is probably the more correct the number. Amount, and that's the people that were part of the lawsuit, which we'll talk about later. Right, right. There are between 50 to 80 likely subjects of Cameron that were affected by these experiments we have just mentioned. And eventually Cameron would go on after this and not really suffer any of the consequences. No. I, we'll, we'll save that for his the end of the denouement of his villain's arc. Fair enough. But I think, based on what we have talked about, I think it would be fair to talk about the survivor's testimonies. Sure. Let's do it. The first of which we will be covering Louis Weinstein. Now, Louis was not, or Louis was not in the point that he could testify. But his son, who was a part of the medical field, actually testified against Cameron in a later trial. Louis Weinstein, or Louis Weinstein, went to the Allen Memorial Institute suffering from a respiratory and digestive issue caused by anxiety. So if you have some kind of indigestion because you're really stressed out about something coming up, you go, I want to maybe deal with my anxiety, and then my tongue won't hurt anymore. That's Somatic! Yes, exactly. Somatic! But that's something that you would be like, this is fairly basic, let's do some cognitive behavioral therapy, let's talk about what is causing my anxiety so my tongue won't feel as bad. However, Weinstein was treated, quote-unquote, by Cameron with LSD and other drugs, electroshock, and the aforementioned psychic driving. In the testimonies for Weinstein's, quote-unquote, treatment, his son Harvey, not to be confused with that Harvey Weinstein, described his father as a, quote, lost soul. My father had no social sense, how to keep clean, how to carry on a conversation. They took his self away from him. Basically, Cameron's experiments left Weinstein's father as a, quote, human guinea pig, a poor, pathetic man with no memory, no life. He lost his business. He lost everything. So going to a medical clinic, trying to get treated for an anxiety disorder that affects your digestion and becoming wiped and not only you being affected, but also your child being affected is pretty fucked up in my opinion. Oh, you think? Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Louis Weinstein's child also said, quote, when you're 13 years old and you see your father, an independent, kind, smart person, become a different man before your eyes, it's impossible to accommodate that. When his father first returned home, he was almost mute. Quote, when he did talk, it made no sense. When Louis Weinstein was asked about things and people that had been dead long ago, quote, At night once, I saw him come into my room and urinate on the floor. He did not know where he was, unquote. And I also believe that's probably because Dodger Cameron basically drugged people up so hard and also put them in such weird situations that like incontinence was actually seen as a good thing. Yeah, that, that was one of the, I don't know if it was ever quoted in stuff that Cameron had written about these experiments, but a lot of the survivor testimonials, because of that blank slate policy that Cameron so tried to enforce, it brought people to an infantile state. I, I think with uh, Louis uh, uh, Weinstein, he actually was talking about how he's looking over the records uh, of his father. Oh, you mean Harvey? Or Harvey, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, Harvey, 
uh, Harvey was looking over the testaments of his father uh, and looking through uh, some of Cameron's notes and said, oh, um, a little bit of incontinence. A little then, bit. A little bit. Mm. And it was like marked as like like a good thing. Like, oh, he's finally being broken down. We, we've broken down the potty training. That was something that Cameron, I would say, wanted as part of this program. The, the fact that he wanted people to be a clean slate means going to an infantile state. If you can't poop by yourself, great, we can start from square one. Right. We can retrain you how to potty train. But I guess listeners, maybe it didn't always work. Not always. But I want to posit this to our listeners. Can you imagine being so void of your memories and your wherewithal that you don't know how to shit anymore? You don't know how to eat anymore. You are gone from what you used to be in. Everyone who loved you does not see you anymore because you do not exist. That's what Cameron did. Wow. A last quote from Harvey in testimonial for his father. My father has ended up feeling guilty that he had done something to deserve this punishment. He's ashamed, embarrassed. My mother died without seeing the end of his life. It will be a tragedy if my father dies without restoring some sense of dignity to his life. And this was taken from interviews in the 80s. As far as we know, we don't know how Harvey and Louis Weinstein have concluded their lives or continued their lives. Well, we most know- of them couldn't continue their lives after this, but and sometimes their children had a hard time dealing with it. But oh, we do I- know, we do know that Harvey and eight other plaintiffs went to court over this with the USCIA. Oh yes, who was a part of the MK Ultra program at the time. So even if Louis Weinstein couldn't get his life back, right. at least people tried fighting for some kind of restitution. And we also know that there was many other cases that did not go to court, almost like over 50, mm-hmm. who were settled out. And yeah. they probably were told, hey, don't talk about this. Here's some money. Yeah, sounds likely. But I think without the bravery of the of the nine plaintiffs coming mm-hmm. um, forward, um, those people we could probably- also never get retribution. Yep, and we probably would not know as much about Cameron as we do today. A uh, quick aside before we go into full, uh, more testimonials. At least six years ago, on the McGill website, they used to tout Cameron as the renowned psychiatrist who founded their department and did these great experiments. But last I looked into it, they say Cameron founded it. But any mention of his renowned experiments has since been removed. So... Oh, how my- bizarre! <laughs> With uh, the revelations coming out about Canada recently, oh, mm. strange. Mm. So it's it's likely that there has been backlash because of the suit, but I think that's justfully so. Well, we can get into another important survivor, which is Velma. Uh, how do you say this name? It's either Orlikow or Orlikov. I'm pretty sure it's Orlikov. Well, she just experienced a very normal human thing of having a postpartum depression. Um, after her daughter was born and was trying to get some treatment for it, which, like, I, I'm sure that's just, like, a natural response. Like, yeah, I you mean, know. my mom went through postpartum depression. You go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you usually talk through it. Maybe you are prescribed meds, but that happens to many people who have children. Right. It's not 
out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, yeah. You just want like a little bit of help, maybe someone to talk to you. Maybe it's a big life change, so it's understandable that you will want to go through like some kind of therapy with somebody if you feel so inclined. However, she was referred to the Allen. Great for her recovery. Yeah, because Velma is getting some kind of treatment for several years and not experiencing. Very much benefit, as far as we have known, so... Yeah, and, and also, like, psychiatry is kind of, like, more of, like, the last option. Maybe you can get, like, a little bit of uh, medication, yeah. as well as, like, a little bit of psychology. Or family counseling kind of deal. Right, like, kind of... nothing worked, and this is also in the 80s, there probably were not as many uh, resources available to her or her family. However, when she was staying there, hey, we're just giving you an IV drip. We're just... We're just giving you an IV drip. Oh, yeah, sure has 14 things of LSD in it, but we're not going to tell you, the patient. There's no informed consent involved, and Velma was given LSD shots 14 times and underwent unconsensual psychic driving sessions to treat her postpartum depression. She said that these were kind of horrifying, because- No shit. <laughs> you, you have no- you, you don't know what- drug you're taking like you have no idea all of a sudden like the walls start um, melting together and you lose your sense of identity after all of that she was scarred for life essentially to quote her husband david orlikal who was an ndp member of parliament at the time he said i'd say velma operates at about 20 percent of capacity it's horrific so the aftermath of her treatments for postpartum depression meant 20% capacity functioning. And one of the saddest statements <laughs> that's like in this case is, quote, I suffer from chronic depression, which sometimes becomes acute. I call those periods my black holes. I don't see anybody and I won't leave the house. I can't read and I used to love to read. I can't write a letter. I have unexplained fears. I wake up at night and afraid, and I don't know why. I'm trying to limp through my life like someone who's been in a terrible accident, and it feels like I'm left crippled. So if you listeners can imagine going through a psychiatric treatment to make you better, but feeling crippled afterwards, I, I, I don't know what nails the head in more of Cameron going off the rails and doing horrible things to people. This is why doctors have a little bit more stringent, like, ethics now. Well, hopefully. Hopefully. I'm hopefully. Sure stuff like this yeah. still goes on in some places. Probably some places. So, if you're not convinced now with what Cameron was doing being a bad thing affecting people, a last quote from Velma was regarding his bedside manner. Dr. Cameron could be cruel if you didn't do exactly what he wanted. He was a god figure to the patients. He'd say to me, What's the matter with you, Lassie? I still hear his voice sometimes. Just so crazy. Could you imagine, like, 20 years or 30 years later, still hearing that voice in your head? It's like a nightmare that presents in your waking existence. The most annoying voice I hear in my head is my own. <laughs> Maybe you are your own Dr. Cameron. Oh, boy. Oh, no! Did you want to talk a little bit about the ethics of this? Because I know there have been studies 
like on ethics breach and the medical malpractice. So in a bioethics class I took many moons ago in college, there was a huge point on consent and knowing exactly what the patients are going to be treated with and knowing all forms of it. There was also points within that ethics class of persuading uh, patients to take a certain action. Now, I believe Velma did not like her treatment during the first week and was persuaded to stay. Which However, one could argue, like, oh, I don't like chemotherapy. Stay, you got to stay a little bit longer even if you don't like it. Yeah, right? if, if you want to be cured, if you want to be cured. Yeah. Which, in some parts of ethics, is, is it's okay to convince the patient in that way. However, her consent was definitely breached when she was not informed about what kind of medications that she was taking. Mm-hmm. It, it, especially, like, if someone tells you, like, hey, I'm going to give you something like an SSRI. You might not know what that means. The doctor doesn't have to debrief you on that. But they go, they you're going to be taking, like, this drug and this drug and this drug. Or um, uh, perhaps when you're in a hospital, they can give you uh, some drugs where you might be unconscious, but it might save your life. However, in Velma's case, not only did she not consent to the drugs that were given to her, but also she was persuaded into a situation in which she already denied consent. Initially. Initially. And then when she became too feeble to deny consent. They took consent in her name i guess like if she was subject to doses of lsd where she could not communicate i'm sure doctors went ah yeah time for the electroshock which it could be arguable that consent was given of like oh anything we do here like a blanket thing like a blanket thing but i I don't think so i i don't think that is entirely uh right and correct and obviously velma won the lawsuit which means that it was not ethical in the matter of the court. Right. That brings us into our last testimony before we get into the end of Cameron's experiments and therefore his life. The final testimonial we have today from our sources is from a Dr. Mary Morrow, who approached Cameron actually for a fellowship in psychiatry. Now, of course, in this time, you had to be subject to physical and mental exams, But after her physical exam, Cameron deemed her a little bit too nervous and ended up institutionalizing Dr. Morrow as a patient herself. Oh, conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. Oh? He he was running out of his quota for the CIA. (laughs) He's like, I gotta get another one in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, 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 I got one. Uh, One wants to learn from me. Ooh, let's just, uh, I, I know how to solve this problem. Just admit her as a patient. Wouldn't that be so fucked up being like part of an internship or a fellowship and be like, I'm here to work. And it's like, you are actually the work. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> Morrow underwent depatterning experiments, of course. That's Cameron's tutelage. I'll teach you depatterning. depatterning. Oh, Let's yeah. Put learn someone, it firsthand. Put someone in a shed with no things, electroshock therapy. Uh, Morrow was under barbiturates for 11 days under Cameron's care. During that time, she actually got uh, brain anoxia, which is kind of like when your brain is deprived of oxygen. Yep. Actually happens a lot to pilots. True, true. 
and or it's usually like hypoxia but it's like also anoxia which is like complete blood loss and like everything gone yes and she was hospitalized now she survived she ended up suffering from prosopagnosia essentially her brain lost so much oxygen she could no longer recognize people's faces after her treatments with her treatment with cameron do i have that i mean what do i look like who who am i uh what's my name again what well i know your name again? i just can't see your face oh wow Neither i think can I, but that's because i'm a vampire and i look into the mirror did zoom give us all this nobody can recognize anyone anymore <laughs> now we're making light of a situation of course but uh to quote i guess our last testimonial from a survivor from dr morrow most of us who have suffered from Ewan Cameron are getting old. I don't have a cent left in savings. I've spent it all on lawyers. The stigma of this case ruined me professionally. I think I'll be dead and buried by the time this is over. So, she started off with a thriving potential career in psychiatry. And, and it was entirely ruined. Derelict, without her credentials, without her rapport... How would how would you understand, uh, like, if you were in that field and uh, you had to give someone therapy, it'd be so hard to give them therapy without seeing their facial expressions. Yeah, or to recognize, like, oh, you're my patient? Never seen you before. That whole blank slate policy is just a life ruiner. Yeah, it, it absolutely ruins not only a life, but a career. Maybe in this circumstance, it's a career, but maybe for... Um, like Weinstein, Louis Weinstein, yeah. like it, it was life ruining. I, I would still say it was career ruining for Morrow and also life ruining because if you're young and you're wanting to start your career and you cannot do anything after the fact, and then you're subject to lawsuit after lawsuit and trying to reconcile or get restitution, that's not a life. Yeah. And you're still alive, but part of you is gone and cannot be taken back. The amount that Dr. Cameron really provided uh, to the medical field was important. I think it was fine in his early stages. He really redefined psychiatry. He brought it to a whole different level, especially in Canada and North America. Right. And kind of reshaped everything. But when he, at least I would say after the Nuremberg trials, he kind of went off the rockers and started hurting so many patients. And... After hearing just these cases, which are very small cases out of many, I mean, it's it, many. It's still big cases, but it's only three testimonials out of between 50 to 80. I don't know if it ever excuses. I don't think it would. The kind of villainy that Dr. Cameron subjected himself to. Yeah. And then he or prosecuted Nazis of, for. He prosecuted Nazis for. And became a part of some kind of similar thought pattern. Not in terms of genetics or eugenics. And, genetics and eugenics, but his mental idea and subjugation of patients, I think, is what makes him a villain today. Especially, like, when you consider his patients really left people debilitated, and most of the results of the experiments, there were no favorable results 
Nobody really got treated for postpartum depression or anxiety or gastrointestinal issues. So maybe he did brainwash them, but he never built them back up. I guess. There was no improved condition, so I would say, from what we know about Cameron's experiments, they were a fail. I would say they were a fail, because if I was a doctor, I'd look at it and be like, okay, you achieved your goals of breaking someone down, but like, how did you make their how life better? How did you better? build them back up? You did not finish your promise. So maybe if you take it in the scope of MKUltra and brainwashing experiments, you're also still meeting halfway. Yeah, right. we can get them to the blank slate. We can get them shitting in diapers and not remembering who they are. But if you can't reprogram somebody or you can't cure somebody, Cameron didn't fulfill his promise to the CIA or to his patients, <laughs> which... Okay. <laughs> right, and it, it really feels uh, kind of like a really bad situation. Yeah, and I find it really weird because Cameron is still looked at as like a pioneer in the medical system today, or the psychiatric system, but his experiments didn't really yield anything other than people being traumatized and not self-sufficient anymore. I guess one could argue Cameron's research was used to, quote, design a scientifically based system for extracting information from resistant sources, or in other words, torture, unquote, according to Naomi Klein, author of The Shock Doctrine, and it laid the foundation for CIA's two-stage psychiatric torture methods. But if you well, think of Cameron as being somebody who wanted to pioneer the medical field and then maybe control it, I don't know. Hot take, hot take. The CIA has already found out in more recent times that torture never really it's works. not effective? Yeah, it's not effective. Yeah, pull people's nails and play, uh, I love you. You love me for 40 hours. It, it, people aren't going to give you the info you want. They're just going to say whatever they want to say in order to get out of the situation. Yeah. yeah, I did it. Cool. I mean, that even happens with people being tried sometimes. Like for murder, like I'll give you the information you want so I don't be hurt anymore. For some reason, we had to learn this lesson so many years later when you can kind of see it here in some of the experiments that Dr. Cameron was running. I bet those people would piss wherever they wanted to simply because they don't want to have to go back in to two months of listening to the same phrase over and over and over and over and over right. and over and or over again. Or even acknowledging, like you said earlier, yes, I'm cured. I have anxiety no more. Let me out. Yeah, please let you're me go. You're going to be anxious times three. Yeah. Oh, there's the door, but you're so full, like so filled with drugs that you can't even walk. One could argue Cameron did not know that the funding for his experiments at McGill were from the CIA, but I think the vast consensus would argue that even if he knew the funding was from the CIA, he probably would not have changed his patterns regardless. No, and that's why we brought uh, Dorea earlier, mm -hmm. is, is that... It's theorized that Dorea has tunnels underground that yeah, go from, from Canada to U.S. from the uh, from the Canada border to the United States border. Uh, since he was never a Canadian citizen, yet worked here for most of his work. Exactly, like thirty years on and off. Um, he would use Dorea, which he is confirmed to work at. Yes, we don't know the extent of what his experiments were. But considering his involvement in MKUltra at McGill, it's likely that his work at Dorea was kind of a predecessor for what he did at McGill. 
a brief aside on the Durea Institute, it was a, a an orphan school. Yeah, we brought that up earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably was using that as a vector mm-hmm. to go from place to place. So he might have just worked there as a, like, being like, oh, I'm just on a workcation. And then was going under the tunnels and meeting with the CIA. Yeah, it could be. We don't know his involvement with the tunnels, but we do know for sure that he worked at Dorea and he did a huge amount of experiments at McGill. He's involved with the CIA. One way or another, if he knows their funding, it's likely he did. If he did not, I think Cameron was in a pursuit of knowledge that was founded by his hubris. I think it was really founded by his hubris. He really wanted to solve schizophrenia and- Also, I would say aging too. Yeah, and also probably aging. Um, you know, it's a really beautiful idea that you can think yourself out of aging. <laughs> but us mere mortal meat sacks. Uh, maybe we're just the weak kind instead uh, of the strong kind. Maybe so. Let's become cyborgs and then we will become strong. Strong like we'll baby become- computer. Wolbermensch. <laughs> Sorry. Bad take. Bad take. Bad take. Strong like baby computer. <laughs> well, to wrap up Cameron's overview, in 1967, he didn't get any comeuppance. Nothing horrible happened other than his death, where he died of a heart attack while hiking with his son, Duncan, in the Adirondack Mountains. I won't say anything bad, but it's always horrible to see a parent die. And and that's not something you want to do. And you're probably going to be kind of loving and whatnot. But Duncan, his son, his oldest son, I have one criticism for him. And it's that after his father died, the psychiatric community really wanted some of Dr. Cameron's notes to uh, see what he discovered, to see what has happened, some of his results. However, some of these papers and files were lost because Duncan wanted to theoretically protect patient confidentiality. Did he really? Uh, Did he know what his dad was doing? He might not know what his dad was doing at the time. Maybe he was protecting patient confidentiality. Maybe that is... But it looks a little bit suspicious that, especially uh, when um, the United States government asked for the MK Ultra files <laughs> and the CIA just accidentally burned them all. Error 404, not found. So, especially after a, like a bunch of files are missing and whatnot, most of those files are still contained today, but we don't know exactly everything that dr cameron was doing so we know the survivor testimonials we know a little bit of documentation but everything regarding mk ultra and the cia projects is basically under lock and key aside from what people have come out about correct right and it makes it kind of like it gives rise to most like conspiracy theories like it would probably be a little bit better if those files were just released instead of maybe being burned. I think even um, McGill tried kind of shoving everything under the rug kind of deal. Like, oh, yeah, like you said earlier. Hide it. Yeah. But don't uh, people want to know the truth? Maybe those files would like help patient confidentiality, but they shouldn't have been destroyed. They should have been put in a safe location archived with, properly or maybe being like uh going through like a lawyer putting into a a safe fault. 
uh, for those patients to decide for themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's That's re- where it's, it's almost removing consent. consent yeah, again. It, it, exactly, exactly. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you can say what you want to do with your files. Oh, they're gone. They they disappeared. Oh no. Right. So if it was to save their confidentiality, they should have had a say in it, uh, whether they wanted their confidentiality protected or not. Exactly. That brings us to the aftermath of Donald Ewan Cameron. Now, usually with our villains arc, we have our atonement and resolution as part of their life, or the aftermath, or like a little bit afterwards. But with Cameron, there was a little bit more after he had died of his heart attack. In 1980, patients started coming forward. So everything we've mentioned from testimonials, from uh, Velma, from Louis from Mary, these were all after the fact of what Cameron had done to them. But in 1980, people like them began to come forward about their experience of, quote, extreme and unusual forms of psychotherapy, according to Vanderpair, unquote. Literally depattering and psychodriving. Yeah, exactly, exactly. These patients reported devastating mental and physical results, including, quote, extreme memory loss, feelings of isolation, anxiety, and, of course... No improvement of their initial conditions, unquote. Now, this was brought to the intention, first and foremost, of the Canadian government. Because, of course, we're at the Harvard of Canada. We're at McGill. Oh, that doesn't mean we're getting good treatment here. So, a lot of survivors brought their qualms and their ailments and their trauma to the government. But the Canadian government was, of course reluctant to give settlements i mean if you imagine canada probably saw cameron as a professor maybe a no one of the most famous professors in the entire world and as a maybe healer or a at least a psychiatrist but he's american he's under america's bankroll maybe even they extrapolated that to he's under scotland's bankroll because like we said earlier he never became canadian so for canada I would see them going, it's out of our hands. He just works here. But more people came forward and started to sue. They Not only did they sue the Canadian government, they also sued the, like, the CIA. Of course. I think, uh, I'm pretty sure that they sued Canada first because that's where people went for treatment, especially because there was a lot of Canadians. Right. Um... And after, like, a long-ass settlement, the Canadian government finally agreed, quote, to provide compensation on compassionate and humanitarian grounds, unquote. However, the Canadian government never acknowledged legal responsibility for the MKUltra experiments at McGill. As I mentioned earlier, if you look on their website, they will say Cameron was the founder. They will not say anything about the experiments. Even Dorea Institute, if you look it up, is mostly on Ghost Hunter websites. But shit fucking happened there. I never touched the cookie jar. Why is the cookie jar slightly ajar? It was a ghost. Yep. Uh, the, uh, the dog did it. The dog can reach onto the counter. It was the cat. <laughs> so, as much as people came forward, there was a lot of, uh, objection, hearsay kind of deal. But eventually, there was an atonement and resolution in terms of Cameron's actions. Patients from Cameron's experiments in Canada were given the right to 100000 Canadian dollars 
as restitution from the Allen Memorial Institute of Depatterned Persons Assistance Plan. Which, I don't know if that sounds kind of weird, MK Ultra brainwashing to you, but if you have a fucking program at McGill for Institute of Depatterned Persons... Assistance. It's it, it, I'm assistance, assisting you. Yeah, yeah. I'm assisting you with being depatterned. The fucking program is having depatterned persons, though! I need and to be depatterned is... from podcasting. No. Uh, can you put me into an institute? You will stay in the podcast. You will stay in the podcast. You will stay in the podcast. You will oh, stay in the podcast. You for some reason, I feel like I want to stay on the podcast. I, I really like this podcast. I don't know why, but like I really like it. You like the podcast. You like the podcast. You like the podcast. You like the podcast. Subscribe, 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 subscribe. <laughs> now, Weinstein, Orlikov, and seven others out of the 50 to 80 survivors of Cameron's experiments, also ended up suing the U.S. government, specifically the CIA, for a million dollars in damages. Now, they they got restitution from Canada because this happened in Canada, but it was part of the CIA. So, knowing the U.S., what do you think happened? Um, oh, wow, that was uh, kind of weird. Uh, objection, hearsay? Uh, yeah, objection, hearsay. Uh, no. <laughs> Cameron? Hardly know him. MK Ultra. <laughs> but they eventually uh, offered to pay about 25k per uh, person. So, you know, it's, it's, for certain victims. Yeah. It's still money, but not not for everyone, but for an undisclosed amount of people. Right. And yeah, that might be good for you or your family. Probably your family, because if you can't go to the bathroom, I I don't think it's enough. I think don't psychologically or psychiatrically torture people to the point that they can't fend for themselves or talk or remember people. For 25k, I might help my partner pee for like maybe a few months, but after that, I don't I don't know if he, if I would be up to it. Wow. You wouldn't help your own partner? What kind of cowboy are you? Well, if I was working at Amazon, then I would hope they would give me a break for my partner's mandated pee break, which I think I might be fired. Well, you could just go on a nice honeymoon to your own personal Amazon deputized sensory deprivation chamber, right? Oh, yeah, where I can some sensory deprivation um, uh, elicited by uh, uh, some textbook by uh, Dr. Cameron. Put a smiley face on it. Oh, excellent. Well, in the aftermath of all of these people coming out with Cameron, abusing them in his sensory deprivation chamber, amongst a a variety of things, they had an attorney called Joseph Rohr Jr., who ended up calling the settlement offer from the CIA, quote, demeaning, unquote, and... Rar contends that the CIA had managed to delay the proceedings by stonewalling. They were delayed by years. It took a long time for anyone to see a pinch of a settlement. And there was also a lot of proof hidden, classified. Yeah, or... as you mentioned with Duncan, uh, Cameron's son. Oh, it was, it was burned. Hidden, uh... It was burned. The CIA also hid a lot of documents revolving around MKUltra. Mm. I'm sure even McGill was like, put it in the archive. 
Put it in the archive. Oh, put it in the archive. Oh, uh, you missed. Uh, you missed this one part in our form. You can't access any documentation until you put it in this uh, your signature, and then we have to vet your signature, and then we have Show to go through a. Uh, we have to go through a bunch of uh, vetting processes to make sure this is actually your signature. Oh, like Facebook two-step verification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, show me your booty hole, and then maybe we'll allow you in. That's for the boomers out there. Well, in court. Rao not only claimed that Cameron's experiments had, quote, no likely therapeutic value, unquote, but they also violated the accepted standards of medical experiments and ratified in the Charter of the United Nations. Wow. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic? Cameron was part of the Nuremberg trials. And later on, his own trial brought that up against him. Right. After his death. I guess one could say, oh, that's just people trying to defame him, but I think the hypocrisy of what Cameron had done with his unconsenting patients warrants that claim. I think Dr. Cameron did really important work and also did evil acts of man. He was a foundation in psychiatry, and he also founded medical malpractice and torture within psychiatry, especially in Canada and North America. And maybe he felt justified trying to be like, oh, this is just an okay thing to do to other humans if no other humans have to go through this experience. Maybe it is, but I think that's his own form of disillusionment. Because if he tried people who worked under the Nazi regime, one would think he'd have the wherewithal for that own self-consciousness. Because what you just said, would he not think that on himself? Or was he too grandiose and too godlike of a figure? Maybe he was inspired by that same regime, but in a mental capacity instead of a physical capacity. Maybe so. Well, after this huge overview, let's uh, kind of talk about him as a villain. Just like get to like the nitty gritty, like maybe like a little summary of like this kind of character because he's really kind of hard to cover. Yeah, he doesn't have a typical villain's arc, but I would say he definitely had a lot of the main points. Uh, Might be out of chronology, but he had a few mentors. Uh, Initially, before he moved to Canada, he had the mentors Sir David Henderson and Swiss psychiatrist Adolf Meyer, and later in Manitoba, Dr. Donald Hebb, which influenced him in the terms of sensory deprivation experiments. And somehow he moved to Manitoba and worked at a mental hospital and began shaping like how psychiatry and psychology was going at the time and that was really his threshold yeah especially in canada and the u.s and i'm sure that kind of trickled down or trickled across for a lot of different psychiatric programs across the world his motivations of course were from british and european schools of thought on psychiatry especially in terms of manipulating the brain but i think that kind of brought him into more of that weird world of how can we shape the brain how can we control it which brings us into his revelation which i think was also part of the nerve trials but also a little bit um hebs a little bit like with the sensory deprivation i think that also really helped his uh, uh, revelation i could see that like hebs being a mentor or mentor to electric boogaloo yeah like he is like oh and, and, and like especially his fascination after the Nurburgring trials with uh, Germany and whatnot, and then with Hebb's influence, he kind of has like this uh, revelation of like, 
oh, we need to this change. Is how we do it. Yeah, he saw people do like evil acts and whatnot. He's like, ooh, what if we can just change their minds to yeah. do something? And I, I would think too, seeing how Hebs paid students and was like, oh, it's only three days, kind of deal, right? For sensory deprivation, Cameron was probably like, I can do this, but bigger, right? And without pay. Yeah, and then maybe he was thinking like during that entire time, like, oh, if I'm successful. What if we could brainwash all of Germany to never be Nazis again? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Or even, like, get rid of schizophrenic people or anyone with a mental illness. Great. Right. If, if you have to have, like, the certain processes and whatnot, you could remove all of those. Theoretically, yeah. Remove the weak from society, or at least reprogramming them, which I think is part of his rebirth and transformation. He takes what he has learned from his mentor, he takes his motivation from the schools of thought, and he takes his revelation from the Nuremberg trials to reshape himself and also psychiatry to transform it. Which, I guess, leads him into like an event horizon. It takes a long time to get to that point, I would say, but it definitely does bring him to that point. He has done, like, mostly fine things for the majority of his life. But then when he combines all of those elements and starts experimenting at McGill, I think he reaches the point of no return. Yeah. As soon as McGill gives uh, funding to him, being one of the heads of the experiments and being part of the CIA... And being part of the MK Ultra program, it's really bizarre. And I, I, I think that really transforms him. He starts going through this process of where he goes from his revelation to kind of like sitting incubating on it. It just makes me wonder because around the time of the Nuremberg trials, Cameron is writing a lot of journals and a lot of books. He doesn't write much about what he did at McGill or what he did at Dorea. So I would see, like, he had incubated on this and he is a <laughs> evil villain. One could argue he is not, but I'm just he's, he's writing thoughts in a journal right now. Like, he's just like... Yeah, yeah, but f as far as we know, there's no documentation after the fact other than how he lived his life. Right. I'm curious, kind of, was he self-conscious in any way, shape, or form? Or is he just so disillusioned that I can override everyone? I can breach consent, I can fuck up people's lives, and I will have no backlash. Which, just to go on this a little bit, before we get to uh, other parts... Like the atonement. Right. Is that perhaps... I, I think there's a there's a hubris, like we mentioned earlier. True, true. Uh, like wanting to be God, in a way. Not. Why should one person be able to deconstruct another person in order to build them back up? It's science, bitch! Science! It's kind of like, okay... Why you do science? Instead of, like, what about a different ideology? Or at least a group or a forum... Right! ...to it, have, like, checks and balances, although that doesn't always work out either. So it's kind of hard to say that, like, Dr. Cameron's like, oh, okay, we can fix all of this by simply, like, breaking them down and retraining them. Like you were, I think, saying earlier in the podcast, it's a little bit hypocritical. Yeah. Because it feels like the Nazis were doing kind of a similar thought pattern. 
Yeah, and I guess that's what feels weird to me about Cameron, is he was judging Nazis on trial, and then following, like, he kind of rhymed in terms of psychiatry. At least to me, I think that's where it feels weird, because he's like, I'm in a pursuit of something just, I'm gonna help people, I'm gonna cure schizophrenia or aging, and then he kind of falls down his own rabbit hole of breaching consent, breaching the Nuremberg Code, and basically abandoning everything of ethics to pursue something that he wanted to seek. And right, and I, I feel like that's correct. His patients were broken down and built up on his own ideas, exactly. Instead of and instead of the West ideas, and I think that would be also a point of contention. As much as we have heard from the survivor testimonials, I bet they still feel this weird. Or at least I would imagine it's many years after the actual trial happened against the CIA and the Canadian government. But anyone who is still alive or their grandchildren, I bet they'd feel like, what am I actually missing? And what have I been misinformed on? We already know that misinformation is so prevalent with media and stuff. But at the time Cameron was working, TV was just like there it's just getting started it was still exactly it it was still in black and white just just kind of getting to color almost the fact that somebody can give you a bunch of drugs and talk to you enough or play a recording there's something horrific in that to me but maybe that's why we do podcasts today one thing i would say is maybe now we're giving some atonement and resolution like we mentioned it was after cameron's death but we, I don't think we mentioned it in our outline, but the Duplessis orphans from Franklin, Quebec, that were part of Dorea, did get a little bit of compensation. I don't think it was much. I think there are still a lot of people out there that have experienced medical malpractice and were falsely labeled as insane or mentally unstable. So, mostly, his tome and resolution can really come from his legacy. I think there's still more to say on that. I mean, like with the his... they got some money. And then I guess also with the survivors of the Allen Memorial, they also got money from the Canadian government. And there was also a lawsuit against the CIA. But despite this restitution and a monetary compensation, people that have had psychiatric and even the instance of the Dorea survivors, sexual and psychiatric abuse too... They will still be scarred for life. Well, that's what I was supposed to say. Is like his legacy is a little bit more of atonement for later generations because there's an amount of money that's nice and safe and like kind of makes up for some losses, but it will never take away the pain. It will never take away the abuse affecting many generations, uh, affecting children's lives. It will not take away from any of that. There was atonement, but it's not going to go away. So I guess that's what you mean by the legacy still lives on. People are scarred by him, right? Yeah, yeah. The legacy is still scarred um, by the people living on. Um, Not only that, um, there's some monetary stuff and whatnot, but it's more about the people telling their stories about this encounter with a doctor who did not follow ethical guidelines. Yeah, and at least I would hope that with the testimonies of the survivors of Cameron, there has been some better form of ethics put in place for psychiatry. I also know in terms of a different form of his legacy, Cameron's experiments 
also created the foundation for CIA's two-stage psychiatric torture methods, which still include psychic driving, playing music, and putting people into comas to torture people around the world today. So maybe yeah, in the that, medical that... field, it's not used as much, but it's still used on black sites, I would imagine. Yes, it's it's still used on uh, black sites. I also know it's uh, used often during certain wars. Yeah, so even though Cameron's patients and survivors have gotten some form of restitution, the fact that he was part of the CIA still perpetuates for whatever U.S. government and other governments too, Canadian government, I'm sure, are still trying to work with. I can imagine just how horrifying this is, like in a theory scenario. You're uh, sitting out in a house. Everyone's surrounding you, like the Pinkertons surround your house. Call them back to last episode. But instead, the Pinkertons set up a bunch of uh, speakers. speakers. Yeah, they speakers. Start playing the Barney theme song. Like over and over again, or just like, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up. And then you listen to that. For, for three months. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you can't leave your house or your base or your compound. It's going to grate on you. Oh, so that yeah. psychic driving technique, You, I'm sure listeners have heard of that being part of various different things. Right. And, and I, I think it would be pretty torturous. So I think his, his legacy really definitely carried on to more monstrous things carried out by uh, the American government. It's insidious, too, because I'm sure people are like, oh, we could fuck somebody up by playing corn over and over on the radio. And then like, oh, wait, somebody already did this. Let's do it. And But I, I, I think he was really the main figurehead for... He started this shit. Correct. And he wrote enough papers and brought it into enough predominance that, ah, we can use this more. And that's why, I guess, the legacy for Cameron, even though survivors of his torture got restitution and compensation, still used in places today. And so, something like this, we can hope that the legacy does not continue on well, as much. Well, next time you're mad at your mom, don't keep playing, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you. Or, or under her pillow, at least. Wait, did you drug her first? Mm. So... Don't drug your mom. Don't drug your enemy. Don't play them mean messages. And if you work for the government, consider your actions. Also, trust your doctors. They're they're probably not going to be as evil as this. And if they are, we can cover them. You'll be part of the story. Anyway, <laughs> this guy was so weird and interesting. He doesn't have a lot of information on him. No, especially like his early life. I think his later life really kind of forms at least our opinion about him right but what would you say his archetype is because he flips around a little bit i would say he was the corrupted i i really do think Mm. i i I think he was a character that was once good that has fallen from grace because he used to be like the best psychiatrist like one of the best psychiatrists around the world i think the fact that he was like approached to try nazis in nuremberg was like you are so smart, you know your shit, like, we want you on the board to try the most evil people. And, but at the same time, he was a person that was put into power, 
And I, there was some points I was reading about Dr. Cameron where he was like, it's just kind of like a, the technico- like tech mercy. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, that's what it was about. And he was like, oh, we should be able to do everything through psychology and whatnot. And like, or psychiatry and whatnot. Uh, and like kind of rule society. And then like all of a sudden you're like thinking. He has the power in his hands. Like, oh no. Right. And then, so it's someone that's in power that maybe is a little bit shaky. Yeah. I think for me, he, his archetype, I definitely agree with the corrupted because I think he got corrupted with his, I, I think when he saw the Nuremberg trials, he kind of went off the rails and was like, let's do everything to the patients because there's no consent from them. Wow. Um, right. So I think for me, I agree with the corrupted archetype. And I think he also played into the authority figure archetype because after he hit that point of corruption, he started opposing, they may not have been the main characters to him, but all of his patients were characters and he opposed their free will and breached their consent to get his ends to a mean. I, th- I think I remember uh, listening to Velma saying that uh, whenever Dr. Cameron came in, uh, she felt like it was the word of God. Yeah. A lot of his patients were afraid of him. Like you said, Velma saw him as a god but was horrified by him. Oh, yeah. And I think that is a very potent form of authority figure. You are the psychiatrist in power. You go, you can leave whenever you want, but can you really, though? I'm going to inject you, and you can't say anything. The breach of consent, the overarching figure of him, the fact that he is giving you medical care... I think really puts him into that archetype of authority figure that is also corrupt. Knowing his past, I'm still gonna stick with corrupted, but agree to disagree. Okay, fair enough. What do you think his villain alignment is? That's a tough one. What do you think? Uh, so I think it's lawful evil. Okay. Because I think he followed the rules. I think he did everything by the book. Except for breaching consent, but... Except for breaching (laughs) consent, but he breached consent by CIA rules or by, like, like, intelligence community rules, which at the time were kind of the rules during the Cold War. True. He utilized all those rules to take advantage of other people. So, he achieved power with inside of a system in which... You need to have documents. You need to uh, go through a college system. You need to become a doctor. You need to uh, become recognized by the state. Uh, You need to become a psychiatrist by a license. And then he used all of that to enforce that upon other people. Mm -hmm. And he never violated a law ever. And so he was using all the laws to his advantage to take advantage of people and so even when he was maybe violating consent the laws might not have been put into place yet and in fact he was creating the laws at the time because he was the head of the uh, uh, psychiatric department at mcgill and he was also the director of the allen institute so he was making the laws and he was making sure everyone was following them how else would he get a bunch of other people to follow suit and be like oh you're just following kind of like the laws and rules of this place well that's where i think you could argue he was neutral evil too because if he's setting the foundation of the law 
then there's not really anything in place other than what your base desire is. For a neutral evil pragmatist, usually they're shackled to impulses and sometimes bound by rules of law and honor, but if there's nothing in the first place, then you can be neutral enough to set them in to place. Especially because, like with Cameron, yeah, he had the laws for the Nuremberg trial, but I think after his paradigm shift, or like his uh, rebirth and transformation, he was like, I'm interested in figuring out how I can do stuff on people because there's not really anything there. Like, Well, for, I don't think... Okay, 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 go on in, go on. For me, I would say, like, he, at least early on, was trying to be ethical, but then towards him pursuing, like, his own psychic driving experiments, he really wanted to do whatever was most prudent to get him to his destination for himself, for the CIA... Regardless of who he hurt along the way, uh, to he, get uh, schizophrenia. Yeah, I like. I think he started with his element of I want to be ethical. I don't want to breach Nuremberg trials or Nuremberg code, codes, rather. But then, as he kept going in, and he got his temptation and motivation of scientific method, but also CIA funding, he continued on to go. Well, let's see how much I can push the envelope. Let me, let me see how far I can go. I will create the rules with this. Do you think that Dr. Cameron would have subjected himself to his own programming? No. I think he liked that feeling of being in power. So that where I think he's neutral evil is that he's interested enough in himself, but he still wants to make the rule, but he wants to be that figurehead almost. Well, I think if he is the rule, then he's lawful evil. If it's anything else, then I think he's neutral evil. You're you're kind of convincing me to your side, um, but I like to think that like he he still followed all the laws and he was trying to get into a position of power in which he could. I do agree with that too, but I still think he was kind of like I can get there. I I, I think I'm mostly thinking of his later villains arc where he started abandoning the ethics and the morals. So early on, maybe he was lawful evil, but and then, then by that time he got create the laws yeah so. so i mean i think he he is somewhere in between i mean i guess being on the dnd spectrum the villains alignment of evil is a spectrum I, I i no i will agree with you i think he is more neutral evil but he is so close to lawful evil i think that's fair because like i agree at the beginning he's very lawful but then he's just kind of like Throw the Nuremberg code out the window. Let me make my own shit. Yeah, so that's why I agree with you that he's more neutral evil than he is lawful evil. And now I agree more with you. Uh, you can uh, convince me to your side, but I also think like it's just like a weird like you just like move it's so close. It's, it's so, so close. close. And I think I, I I think you could also argue that as he gets into his neutral evil spectrum. He still shifts in between. Right. Yeah. He goes from lawful being like, oh, no, I, I follow all my codes. That Here's my things. Yeah. Or like sometimes it'll be ethical. Like sometimes I won't. Like hearing from Velma, it sounded like he was that God figure that was like, I don't give a shit about you. But I'm sure some people were like, oh, he's my friend. This is fine. And he was polite to them and kind of ethical. But then throw it out the window. Right. So maybe he was on a spectrum of lawful and neutral. I think he was predominantly neutral evil, but I could see him sliding in between. 
Right. So I, I, I think I'm probably mostly make him neutral evil because whenever the law goes into his benefit, he yeah. follows the law. Yeah, but if there's no law, then huh, I'll do whatever the fuck I want. Right. So. With that, what made you villainous this month? I have a pretty harsh one. Uh, do you want to go first? I was, I was so villainous. Let me think for a second. One thing that comes to mind is I poisoned my friends. You did what? Am I a friend? Uh, we'll see. Oh, uh, I guess I'll see. Did you eat rat poison for dinner? Oh, uh, no, I thought I just ate chili dogs. Well, I guess you're a friend because... Oh, God. You asked for chili dogs, and I thought it'd be a good idea to try making them from scratch. And you put rat poison in them? No, I did not put rat poison in chili dogs, but the fact that, like, everyone got (coughs) died. I'm not on Ted yet. Yeah, so Trin requested, after seeing a movie that us and a few friends made... Chili cheese dogs, which I had never eaten before, and Trind said was <laughs> one of the best foods in the world. However, most of the people were lactose intolerant, and also chili is a recipe for disaster. So we made chili cheese dogs. So the lactose intolerance <laughs> people had diarrhea out the wazoo, and the people who can't handle beans, like everyone, had diarrhea out the wazoo at least four times in one day. So I unintentionally poisoned <laughs> everyone. I, I I think it was strychnine. Yeah, I, what? <laughs> I ate the chili dogs too! What made it, you villainous? Uh, what made me villainous? You chili dog fiend. Oh, yes. So I actually started a gang war. Of course you did. Oh, oh yeah, of course. So, near where I live, uh, there's actually a grocery store, and I noticed a bunch of people, like, started hanging out around it. It was, like, something like, like, three people at first, like, four people, and all of a sudden it was, like, ten people, and all of a sudden it was, like, fifteen people just hanging outside the store. And then, like, fifty, right? Eventually, there was actually fifty people, like, hanging out the store. Absolutely insane. So one day I'm like going by, I'm like, I'm, I'm super curious. So someone, I, like I come out and someone asks me for money. And I'm like, okay, I give you five bucks. What is going on here? Cause I have no idea. Isn't this like what curiosity like kills the cat? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, oh, here's five bucks. Tell me what's going on here. Get stabbed. <laughs> so one person points me out and they're like, hey, hey, are you a cop? And I'm like, that guy's oh. a cop. I'm like, oh, uh, things are interesting now. Uh, I'm like, do I look like a cop? And what do I look like, X? Trin looks like a roadie who works for Falling in Reverse. He has long black hair, wears all black clothes, and is a little bit sus. Yeah, I look like a little bit sus myself. So I'm like, okay. I can see people thinking you were in the drug trade. But if you had more heroin cheeks, I I, I suppose you look so. like a, you're a roadie. You look like you work with musicians. Yeah, I look like a, like I work with musicians. So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm totally a cop. So I go out, and uh, a few days later, I go back to the same grocery store. The person that I offered five dollars to points me out and goes, 
oh, he's the guy. And all of a sudden, I get kind of swarmed by like a few people being like, hey, man, are we going to have any problems here? Uh, what's going on? And then as soon as like he was approaching me, he like put his arm around me, and then a bunch of people like flew, like the scene ran away. Yeah, they like just a bunch of people like ran away. I'm like, well, this is interesting. He's like, are you having any problems here? I'm like, no, I just go here for groceries. I want to leave. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm trying to have a good time. I'm like, do you have any idea why they ran away? I'm like, seems like that's the kind of thing that people would do around here. And then he's like so crazy anyway i go back home because i leave and within the next few weeks outside of that grocery store there was like maybe four or five stabbings and essentially every time you've been around it's like there's a dealer there or people wanting to buy and they're all like run away or and, ask and you what's up or hide from cops and it was always the stabbings that happened after that interaction. So I think I made someone really, really paranoid and <laughs> caused a lot of people to uh, kind of go into this weird state. Maybe I'm hyping myself up too much here. Maybe I didn't start Not the, the gang war. Not the for a gang war, but there, there's a lot of weird activity. But you know what? I still go to that grocery store and I have a good time. But there's always chaos going to it. Chaos is a lot of... Oh, yeah. Chaos is everywhere. Well, if you would like to be part of the World Domination Committee, please follow us on whatever interface you would like to listen to podcast on. And also, leave us a review, preferably on iTunes. You can also leave us a review on Spotify, but I don't think there is a feedback form, so just a star. Or five. You can also infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. And if none of those reviews work, send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. You know we call out feedback. You can also read our snarky remarks on the decrepit hellspace that is Twitter at the capital W, capital D, capital C, capital podcast. See what shenanigans I'm up to at trin.tech, T-R-Y-N-N. Dot T-E-C-H. You can also help to proliferate the gay agenda on Tapas or Patreon by reading what we do in the closet. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions.
night babies.